But we're talking about how we press in, how we move forward with Jesus. What does it mean to press in and to press on? And how do we do this? And we've been speaking um, on the past three weeks about different phases and, and, and how we do this. Uh, we spoke the first week on how we look backwards to move forward. But then the second week, we spoke upon living in the moments of life, success, successfully living in the moments of life. Then the third week, we spoke on the cost and the joys, but we emphasized the cost of what it means to press into Jesus. What is the cost of salvation? So I want to take just a couple minutes just to review these weeks just a little bit as we move forward to what we're going to talk about today. But today we're going to be talking about how, we, how do we do this? How do we really move on to the future? How do we do it? What's the practical ways to do that? You know, as I was um, gone on vacation, I started to reread the book from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And if you want a good book to read that talks about the basics of Christianity and how it explains your faith in a way that maybe you haven't thought of before, I encourage you to get that book. It's an amazing book, and I just love it. But C.S. Lewis talks in this book about how we look backwards sometimes to go forwards. He says in this book, he says, We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have, an, if, and if you have taken a wrong turning then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when doing arithmetic. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about a pig-headed and refusing to admit mistake. If you are on the wrong road, you must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. A, a, an illustration of what C.S. Lewis was talking about. This is the road of eternal life. And the Bible, and this is based on Matthew chapter 7. You can read this with me. Enter through the narrow gate. Let me hear you speak it. For wide is the gate... And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So here is the narrow road of truth. All right, now this is our life, and at some point in time in life, we've come to a decision point that we had a choice to stay on this road or to go on the wider road. You see how this is a little bit wider? Purposely done because it's the wide road, the road that is easy to walk on, the road that leads to where? Destruction. This narrow road leads to heaven, and it's narrow because the Bible says it's narrow, and few find it. Why? Because the Bible says it. Not that God wants that, but that's just the way it is. That's the free choice we have. All right, so now we are on this. We've made this decision point, and we find ourselves on this road here bondage to sin, it's untruth, it's unbiblical, it's deception, it's lies, it's whatever you want to call it. If we stay on this road, it's never going to get to heaven. You understand that? There is nothing here that is ever going to go, it's never going to do this. It's never going to go that. If I'm on this road, I have one destination, and it's hell. 
And we need to realize that. Now, C.S. Lewis says a good thing, and what he says is the quickest way, the quickest way to get to heaven is to go backwards. You've got to go backwards to this decision point and recognize that we have to get on the right road. And the way we do that is through this big word called repentance. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry can mean lots of different things. I'm sorry can mean, I'm sorry that I got caught. Next time I'm going to do it and I'm not going to get caught. That I'm not sorry about that. But repentance means more than that. Repentance means, yes, I'm sorry I got caught. But more importantly, I'm sorry I did it in the first place. And now I'm going to go back to this decision point. I'm going to do what I have to do if I have to make amends with people, if I have to go back and apologize to people, if I have to go back and fix what I can fix and recognize that what I can't fix, I just leave it to the Lord and I just truly change my life. It means going backwards and it means me taking on a new life, a new road. I'm no longer staying on this road. I'm getting on the new road called truth. And when I do that, I have freedom. That's that's living a Christian life. When I can stay on the narrow road, it may appear to the world as that's a boring world road. That is a road where you're limited by the do's and the don'ts of the Bible. Well, I'll tell you right now, the do's and the don'ts of the Bible give freedom. When Jesus says, when God says in his word, don't do something, he doesn't say, I don't want you to have fun. He says, I don't want you to hurt yourself. And if you stay on that road and if you continue to do the don'ts, if you do the don'ts, I guarantee you bondage to sin, I guarantee you heartache, I guarantee you regret, I I guarantee you consequences that you don't want to deal with. But the quicker, as C.S. Lewis says, the quicker the man recognizes where he's at and turns around and goes backwards and repents and gets on the right road, the less negative consequences you're going to have in your life. The quicker you're going to be able to get to a life of true godly freedom, which is no regret, no remorse, no I wish I would have, but it would be closer to walking the life of godliness and holiness, and that will take you to heaven. So that's what we talked about before about going backwards. The second week we talked about living in life's moments, and the significant there is that we define the word successfully living in life moments, not just living in them, but how do we successfully live in the moments of life? And we we talked about what does the word successful mean in that regard. Well, successful there doesn't mean that every moment is going to be filled with happiness and comfort. Successful living in the moment doesn't mean that I'm living by a happy feeling all the time. If that's the case, then Apostle Paul was a very unsuccessful man living for the Lord. Because we emphasized, and he emphasizes, how much he suffered, how much he was persecuted. How much he had to suffer and deal and struggle in his moments as he was contending for the faith. So successfully living for the moments is not about happiness, even though I'm all about happiness, and so was Paul. We all like happiness. We're not against it at all. We love the happy feelings. That's good. We cherish those. But it's all about understanding that when we live eternally in the moments, that is successfully living in the moments. We live eternally in the moments. We ask the questions. We ask the question that we do life moment, do life's moments define our future, or does our future define our life's moments? We answered that question. Second Corinthians chapter four, eighteen. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So when I fix my eyes on the things that are not based on the temporary successes, the temporary happiness feelings, the temporary things that would give me fulfillment in this world, when I fix my eyes on the things that I cannot see that are eternal, that are fully fulfillment of God's plan, that is how my future is defined by living in my moments. When my moments then, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not knocked off course when the bad things of life happen. When you have the disasters like we've experienced in this community the last few weeks, when we have those things happen, when I am focusing my life on Jesus, then these moments do not define my future, but, whether, but rather the future that I have, that I know my future is secure in Jesus Christ, that I know that I'm on the right road to heaven, then my future then helps me define the moments to be productive eternally. Big difference there. And as we grasp that, we'll find it. And then the third week, we talked about the cost of what it means to truly be a Christian. And we talked about three basic elements of moving forward. Number one, understanding the potential of the heavenly reward. Number two, counting the cost to get there. And number three, determining in my heart to press on in the moments of life. And uh, clearly, all three of those points were significant. But understanding what heaven is is huge. Understanding that heaven is a positive reward, not just a floating in the clouds with little wings on our back, strumming harps. If that's what heaven is, I don't want to go there. Do you? That, I have, that, that, appeal, that doesn't appeal to me at all. See, but that's, that's the bill of goods that the enemy wants to push on us. That's the level of boringness that the enemy wants to push on us because he wants us to, he wants to take what heaven is about and twist it into something that we don't like. Do you, know what, do you know why I can say that confidently? Because the devil came from heaven. The devil came from the pre, being in the presence of God. He's a fallen angel. He knows how grand and how absolutely undescribable heaven is because he was created by the same creator that created you and I. And he had this thing called pride that came in so many thousands of years ago. We don't know exactly when. But he had this thing came in, and that caused him to fall out of the graces of God. And God then cast him out of heaven. And therefore, Satan does not want any of us to experience heaven the way he knows it really is. That's why he gives us all kinds of contortions. That's why he gives us these stupid commercials on TV where we see the little people, you know, strumming harps and with, with you know, the whole thing on these little fluffy white clouds called, you know, toilet tissue. You know, how, how we can coordinate heaven with toilet tissue, I don't know. But they figured out how to do it somehow, some way. And that totally destroys our, it distorts our view of heaven. But heaven is going to be an awesome, awesome place to live forever and ever and ever because it's going to be in the presence of God Almighty. And when do I get that? When I can get that clearly in my mind, that helps me to, to be able to count the cost. And Jesus told us clearly that we are to count the cost. The thing that's amazing about this is that clearly salvation, the gift of salvation, is a free gift. Nothing I can do, nothing you can do to deserve it, to earn it. Nothing, nothing out of my goodness can I gain heaven other than to receive freely the gift that Jesus gave to us by dying on the cross. It's only through the blood of Christ, only by the sacrifice that he made, where he gave up everything so that I could freely receive the gift of salvation. I don't know that we really clearly comprehend what Jesus gave up. 
to, to, uh, to allow us to experience grace in the, in the presence of, Jesus, of, of God as Father. I mean, Jesus was in heaven, and I know we, if we don't have a proper perspective of heaven in the first place, and we certainly don't have a proper perspective of where Jesus is coming from, he gave that all, all that up to come down to take the, the, the place and to take the position lowly of a man to humility and, and, and hard punishment of a man. And he came and he sacrificed for us. He gave up everything about him so that we could have the free gift. And now it's a free gift, but now here's the, here's the interesting part. Jesus went on to say, that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that that free gift is going to cost you everything you have. That free gift is going to cost you your life. Are you confused? Does that bring a confusion to you at all, how something that can be free can have a heavy cost? See, it costs Jesus everything. Therefore, for me to receive it properly, it must cost me everything. Even though I can't buy it, even though I can't earn it, even though I don't deserve it, it's a free gift, but yet it's going to cost me. Matthew chapter 16 tells us, 24 through 26, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, it's very important that we understand that, that Jesus here was trying to set the proper expectation. Certainly not trying to be a stumbling block for anybody. Certainly not trying to make it so big and so grand that you can't do it. He's just saying, you know, guys, if you'll accept my gift, I'll give it to you freely. And if, but it's going to require your life. And, and again, like we talked about on that road, that, that narrow road, when we find that narrow road, when we find ourselves wholly submitted to Christ, Life is free. Life is not bondage. Life is a good life. And it's not hard. It's not hard to be a Christian when I fully surrender my life. It's only hard to be a Christian when I want to try to control it, when I want to try to manipulate it, when I want to try to make it on my terms does being a Christian become hard. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody agree with me on that one? Anybody but down that road? But when I finally come to the realization that the only way the only way that I can truly be a Christian is to give my life totally to Jesus. All of a sudden, the power of God flows through my life to change me. That's grace. That's grace. That's how grace is completed because it takes it not just to the point of forgiving of sins, but now it completes the work by changing me from within so that I don't want to sin anymore. It doesn't mean I don't slip. It doesn't mean I don't fall. It doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. But that grace thing that's completed in me says, I want to change right away. As soon as I fall into that sin, there is something that comes in me that, that, that says, I don't like this place. I, I don't like where I'm at right now. Whereas before, sin didn't have that problem for you. When you were living a life of, in sin, you were comfortable in sin because that's all you knew. But when grace comes into your life, yes, it forgives us but it also changes us so that when I make the mistakes, when I do sin, that there is an immediate prick in my spirit that says, Mike, you're not at the right place anymore. You've gotten off the road. You need to go back. You need to repent again. And you need to get back on the right road to eternal life. That's grace, folks. Grace doesn't say you can continue down the road you're on and still get to heaven. 
We have misconstrued it. Somehow, someway, the American church and our society has misconstrued grace to say you're forgiven once and you can do whatever you want from thereafter. That's not grace. That's an untruth. That's a lie. That's a trampling of grace, as we're told about in Hebrews, that we can trample the gift of grace. Grace says, yes, you're forgiven. Now, because you're forgiven, you're not your own any longer. You are now Christ. And when you step off into humanity again, the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to flow through you and give you a little knock along the side of the head <laughs> and say, come on, come on, let's get back on the right road. And now you have the choice again. Are you going to move or not? See, when we, say, when we, when we accept Jesus Christ as our, as our Lord and Savior, or really our Savior and Lord, we say that backwards. You know we say that backwards? We say he, he, that he's our Lord and Savior. No, he's not. He's our Savior first, and then he becomes our Lord. He's our Savior first. See, that moment of salvation, when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, that is a, a one-day one event. When I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, he's my Savior, but he's not my Lord yet. Lord comes day two, through day whatever you have left. And when I make him Lord now, now he is my Savior and my Lord of everything. If he's not Lord of everything, he's not Lord of anything. You've heard that said before. It's kind of a little quip, but it's really true. I can't pick and choose what I'm going to give God lordship over. If you want to be part of center point, then we need to recognize who's at the center point of our life, right? If you want truly truly want Jesus in your life and you really want to be on that, that, that narrow road where only a few are going to find it, the only way you're going to stay on that road is by making Jesus Christ the center point of your life. And he then is the umpire and he is the decision maker of everything you do. So that now when you have this lordship question in your mind, if Jesus clearly isn't the lord of your daily actions, that's a good indicator that maybe you're on the wrong road. And maybe you need to back it up, turn around, repent, get back on the right road and say, Jesus, be Lord. Be Lord of my life. And when you do that, freedom. No guilt. No reservations. No bondage. It's an amazing experience. But you only get it when you're totally ready to surrender. You won't get that unless you're ready to surrender. If you're playing the game, if we're playing the game of salvation, you're going to be miserable. You're probably, if, if you're playing that game right now, you're probably squirming right now in your seat a little bit, thinking, come on, Mike, move off this point, and let's get into something good. But I'm telling you, this is telling. This is an ind indicator of what road you're on. If you're anxious, if you're a little bit, or if you're a little bit uh, nervous, what road are you on? That's a good indicator. It's a good indicator. All right, let's move on. That was all about the last few weeks. Now, what are we going to talk about today over the next 15, 20 minutes? Today's message is that how do we get on the road and how do we move forward on that road? How do we, how do we really apply it? You know, so many times we come to sermons and we never get to the application. And, uh, and I hope we can do that. But here's the text for the day. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 2. In verse 3, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The first word is how we do it. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Understand that that word is a um, verb, meaning that is a action, and it is something that we do on a regular basis. It's not fixed our eyes on Jesus. It's not a one-time fixed fixing. It is a daily occurrence. It is a moment-by-moment fixing our eyes on Jesus as we intentionally and deliberately make Jesus the intent of our life then we are preparing ourselves for eternal life. And then when we do that, when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, then he gives us the ability to get through life. Then he says, consider Christ who suffered. Consider Christ who gave up it all for you and I, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's a hard life, guys. It's a hard life, isn't it? I'm tired. You're tired. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to recognize the fact that it's a hard life. But when we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, he then will give us the ability to, to not grow weary and not grow weak. He's with us in the boat of life. He's with us. He's not abandoned us. He didn't leave us and say, you're on your own. But we have to physically and purposely fix our eyes on Christ. Zig Ziglar, maybe you've heard of him. Zig Ziglar is a motivational speaker. He's quoted as saying, You hit what you aim at. And if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. Say that again. You hit what you aim at. And if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. You get that? It makes sense? See, we have a target here, and by fixing our eyes on Christ, we have a target. The enemy's plan, the enemy's plan, let's just talk about what the, enemy, the enemy's plan, he wants to unfix you. He wants to get your eyes off of the target, because if you're aiming at nothing, you'll hit nothing all the time. If you don't set a target, if you don't, do, if you don't purposely put in your mind that I am going to focus on Christ... I'm going to make him the umpire of my life. I'm going to make him the center point of my life. I'm going to fix my eyes on him so that when I have the challenges of the daily moments, I'm going to, let, I'm going to put everything through that filter of Jesus first. And when I put it through that filter of Jesus first, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to find myself being challenged to do the things that please him. Whereas if I don't have that filter, if I don't have that target then I have nothing to filter my daily moments on. And therefore, I am random, and I am all over the place, and I have no philosophy of life that gives any direction or any comfort in times of sorrow or anything to really base my life on in the future. That's the world's philosophy. And they like that philosophy because everybody wins in that philosophy. I, when my kids were younger, fortunately, we were, I think, before that curve of everybody wins. But today, if you take your kids into soccer or softball or whatever, they don't keep score anymore because they just want kids to be rewarded for participation. They don't want to put any goal out there to say you have to win anything because if you win something, that makes somebody else feel bad. You know, that is, do you see what that is really a ploy of the enemy 
to get our whole society thinking that there really is no right and wrong. It's all relative. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to say right or wrong. Everybody wins. Everybody's good. Everybody is worthy of a, tr a trophy. Everybody's worthy of a crown. But that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says we are to run the race because only one person wins the race. The Bible is somewhat competitive because our enemy is competitive. And I'm not saying that we deflate the balls. <laughs> this is Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not saying that we cheat, okay? I'm not saying we do that. I'm saying we, we live by the rules. And we, and, and we compete by the rules. The Bible talks to us about that as well, that we compete as a runner. We compete by the rules if we're going to win the race. But we are in a race, and we are in a competitive nature, and we are in a war. And we need to fight accordingly that way. But when we have the philosophy that everybody wins, then all of a sudden everything is mushy and gushy and no definition, and there is no right and wrong, and now we have nowhere to place our hope. We have, no way to, we have nowhere to really place our assurance that if I live a life of a holiness, that it's going to do anything for me, any different than a guy that lives the way he wants to live anywhere else, because at the end of the day, we're never going, nobody's going to lose. You see how the devil has twisted this all around? How we need to set our eyes on the, on the goal? Set our eyes on the focus of Jesus. So what does it really mean then to do that? Well, is it simply a one-time decision point and then taking life one day at a time without intentional thoughts or action? Do you, do you believe that? Is it, does it happen one time and then, then you forget about it? No. No, it's a daily event. It's a daily activity. It's a daily evaluation of my life. It's an, a daily evaluation of your life so that you know, you know Am I on the right road, or do I need to do something different? See, um, and, our, and, and again, our society doesn't like that. They don't like it when we evaluate things. And uh, it's, almost like, it's almost like God is like a parent, a bad parent, that tells little Johnny to behave or else. Or else when dad gets home, he's going to give you a spanking. <laughs> I mean, we've all, I know we get frustrated with our kids sometimes. We don't really know how to react to them, and so we make all kinds of threats. But at the end of the day, we don't really discipline because we don't carry through on the threats. And our society kind of thinks the Bible's that way, that God is that way, that God makes all kinds of demands, disciplines. But at the end of the day, He'll give me a buy. He'll look the other way when it comes from my decision point because I'm narcissistic and I'm different. I know. I've justified my actions that way. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably will have said you've done it too sometimes in your life. And uh, I'm, all I'm saying, uh, the only reason I say that is to make it aware of, to, so that we're aware of it. So we know that we don't allow those things to happen because that's not the right way. It's not the right way. God, God wants all of us to accept the things that would put us into the right road. And he wants to open up our eyes. And he wants to keep us, he wants to allow us to, to fix our eyes on Christ. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I um, read a devotional this week by James McDonald. And in this devotional, he used the scripture. John chapter 8. 
verses 31 through 32, in the English Standard Version. You don't have this in your NIV, but this is the English Standard Version translation. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, he's talking to Christians, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, he's not talking to sinners now, Jesus is talking to the church, he's talking to you and I. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's read that again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does it mean to abide? We don't use that word very often, do we? When was the last time you said, I abide with my wife? (laughs) No, I live with my wife. I don't abide with her, even though I abide with her. But what does abide mean? Abide means to dwell, to take up residence to live within or to stand for something. So when I say that we are to abide with Christ, we are to abide in God's word, it means that we live in God's word. And God's word becomes saturated in us. And we then take it serious. When we read God's word, we don't say it's for somebody else. No, it's for me. It's for me. And God doesn't waste any words. If God says something, he means it. That is abiding in God's word. It is dwelling in God's word. It is standing up for it, defending it against the enemy, defending it against the world that would want to take it and twist it and make it for somebody else or water it down to the point that it has no target. It has nothing to aim at anymore. No, we as Christians, truly Christian people, we stand up to it and we say, no, that's God's word. It's God's word, and I'm going to defend it. I'm going to hold to it. The NIV translation says, if you hold to my teaching. The ESV says, if you abide in it. The NIV says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. See, taking hold and abiding to the teachings that we know to be true, that helps us focus on doing the daily things of life. It helps me to focus. It helps me to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. It's important that we just don't say the words and then figure out, then don't get to, we don't get to a point of where we can actually see it in our lives. And I'm hoping that we can see this somehow that will help you tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday where you're frustrated with something in life. And so you think, now, what do I do here? Well, where's where's your focus? Where are your eyes? What are you looking at? You know, if you're going down a highway, I've heard it said this, if you're going down a highway and if you see a car parked on the, on the side of the road, don't look at it. Because if you look at it, you might hit it. Seriously. Keep your eyes focused on the lane you want to go. Don't look at the accident because your tendency is to drive into what you're looking at. You know, if you're throwing a ball, you look where you're throwing Seriously, you look where you're throwing the ball. You watch the Super Bowl tonight, and you, you'll watch the quarterbacks. They're not looking like this. No, they're looking specifically at the target, and they're throwing right at the target. Now, here's the deal. They're deceptive because they'll look away first, and then they'll look where they're going to throw, but they never, don't, they never throw it where they're not looking. See, and we then, as Christians... We need to keep our eyes focused on Christ because when I let the world come in and bring distractions to me and my eyes start floating over here to the worldly events and Jesus is over here and the world is over here, you know where I'm going to go? I'm going to go where I'm looking. 
I'm going to go where my eyes are taking me. I'm going to go where my desires are taking me, right or wrong. And so if I'm going to abide in Christ, I'm going to know his word, and I'm going to dwell on it, I'm going to live in it, and I'm going to allow that to just take my full attention. And I'm no longer allowing myself to get distracted by the events of the world. Those movies, those, the pornography, uh, all the other things that would take me into the partying world, all that stuff. It may sound fun, and it may be the thing to do, and it may be culturally acceptable, but if it's taking my eyes off of Christ, you know what it's doing? It's taking you off the right road, and it's putting you on the road, the easy road, where many will find that easy road. I want to be, on the, I want to be one of the few. I want to be one of the few, and I want everyone in this church to also be with me and one of the few. I want this whole community to be one of the few. That's what I want. James McDonald says this, this passage, abiding, means our, that our conversations, our illustrations, our meditations ought to be permeated with Scripture. We should live so much in God's Word that it fills us up and overflows constantly from our lips. The beginning of knowing what God wants you to do is knowing what God wants you to do. <laughs> the beginning of knowing what God wants you to do is knowing what God wants you to do. How do you know that? By getting into Scripture, by keeping your eyes focused on Christ, by coming to Sunday school, by coming to Bible studies, by corporately coming together. That's how we encourage each other. So important. Don't let the devil distract you by taking you off on your own little tangents throughout the week. You wanna, do you want to know what it, a way to get discouraged? Don't come to church. Don't come together. It won't be long, and your eyes are going to be unfocused, and you're going to be doing something over here that is going to discourage you from doing what you need to be doing. Conversely, if we're not abiding in Jesus' words, going back to James McDonald, if we're not basing everything we believe on the book God wrote, we can't expect to know the truth or experience his freedom. We, and we can't honestly claim to be his disciples. I love it when other preachers preach his preach hard. That I'm not the only one saying something like that. Abiding means his words are persistently changing us. We're discovering through practice what David describes when he said, I have stored up your word in my heart that, it, that I may not sin against you. Psalms 119 verse 11. J David, David knew how to abide. David knew how to abide. Jackie, if you'd come this morning. But this morning, as we examine our lives and our progress, are we moving forward? And maybe do you have to go backwards first a little bit? You know, be totally honest with yourself here. Um, as C.S. Lewis says, the pig-headed man will never get to the destination if he's too stubborn to admit that he made a mistake. Again, C.S. Lewis. That's not Mike Way. <laughs> but, you know, where are we this morning? Where are we? Are we on the right road? Do we need to evaluate ourselves? Where, what are your eyes fixed on this morning? You know, living for Jesus and pressing toward the goal, even though it will cost you everything, it's not hard. It's not hard. Unless you make it hard. Here's how we do it. Psalms chapter 119, starting at verse 9. Here's the question the psalmist puts out to us. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Good question. Don't even stop. Don't, even, don't read further. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Isn't that an interesting question that the Bible would ask that question? 2015. How does a young person in today's world live for Jesus? How do you do it? There are so many temptations in school. So many temptations 
in the world. How do I, as a man or a woman or a young person, live for Jesus? How do I live? How do I stay on the path or the road of purity? Here's the answer. Now read with me. How can a young person stay on their path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. How does a young person, how does a man live for Jesus in purity? There's how. Go back today and reread that scripture and meditate on that scripture and delight in the laws, delight in the instructions, delight in the teachings of God's word, and it will illuminate your path. And you will have no regrets, no big sorrows, no periods of guilty consciences thereafter. Life will be peaceful. Life will be pure. Life will be free. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. Lord, we thank you for your love. And Lord, it's because you love us so much that you're not afraid to tell us the things we need to know, the things we need to do. And Lord, when we have things that make us a little bit uncomfortable, that's not one man judging another man. That is not a man's philosophy, because a man's philosophy would say, let's not push anybody's buttons. Let's keep it all nice and easy. But Lord, I appreciate, we appreciate here when we get a little uncomfortable in your presence when we get a little bit un unsettled in our spirit, because that is a great way to know if I need something, to, if I need to take care of some things in my life. I need to know. I need to measure my life according to your word. So, Lord, I pray, though, as we go to our homes today, that you would challenge us and you would comfort us in knowing that you really are on our side, that we are not here to do this alone, and you are not waiting to punish us. You're not here with the big hammer waiting for us to screw up so you can hit us on the head. No, you want, us, you want to lead us instead. And you want to take us into your fullness now in this life where we can have freedom and we can have joy and peace unspeakable as we serve you and as we worship you. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Jackie, let's sing that song that you're playing right now, and we'll use that as a time of dismissal. Amen.
Now listen, as we dismiss you this morning, if you ever want to talk, if you want to understand if your eyes are focused correctly, please see somebody. I would love to talk to you. Find another Christian person that's around you. Spend some time with them. Talk to them. But don't, dis, don't, don't ignore this message. Don't ignore this fact. This is so important. It's all for you. We want to serve you. We want to, we want to bless you with eternal life. Father, I pray that you just go with us today. Lord, continue to stay in our hearts and our lives and lead us, Father. Encourage us as we move on in this life, winning every day for you, every day for you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.